Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to, like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today, we have the story of the 1904 Olympics. Susan Brownell, professor of anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, is an expert in Olympic Games and Olympic history. She brings us the story. I became interested in the Olympics as an athlete, actually. I mean, from the time I was quite young, I just really wanted to compete in the Olympic Games. And one thing led to another. I got a full athletic scholarship to college, and I competed at the elite level in track and field. 
but I just wasn't good enough to make an Olympic team. I uh, competed in the 1980 and 1984 Olympic trials. My best finish was seventh, but I was uh, lucky because um, I was able to convert it into an academic career. The first Olympic Games had been held in Greece, in Athens, and so that had really stamped the character of the early Olympic Games, which were connected with Western civilization, which actually was a sort of fairly new concept at that time. It was a concept that was um, emerging as uh, Europe tried to figure out what it had in common versus the rest of the world. And so the games were linked with this, you know, glorious tradition going all the way back to classical Greece, which was shared by every culturally Western person in the world, supposedly. The second games were held in Paris, Pierre de Coubertin's home stomping grounds. Uh, they had been less successful because they had been held together with a big exposition, the Paris Exposition of 1900. Coubertin had thought that would be a good idea, but in the end, they just kind of got lost in the mix with this huge exposition that was going on. So heading into the next Olympic Games in 1904, he had not wanted them to be held in association with an exposition, and originally they had been awarded to Chicago. At that time, the World's Fair was scheduled for 1903 because it was a celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, which was in 1803, but they couldn't get their act together and they were behind schedule, so they had to push back the opening a year to 1904. And they were planning a huge amount of sports events. James Sullivan was the president of the Amateur Athletic Union, the most powerful man in sports in the U.S. at that time, and he was the one organizing the sports um, in association with the World's Fair. Well, in 1901, there had been a big exposition in Buffalo, New York, at which he had declared that he was going to organize an Olympic Games because the Europeans didn't organize them and the Americans could organize one if they wanted. He got into a fight with Coubertin over that and eventually he yielded. But I think you could see that it would be a natural thing that in 1904 he would want those sports that he already planned to organize in association with the World's Fair to be designated, you know, at least part of them as Olympic sports. So there was a huge sports program surrounding the World's Fair, which was not all Olympic. The World's Fair went on for six months. That's how long they typically last. And the sports program went on for that entire time. And there were about 400 events and several thousand participants. And then within that, only a small uh, chunk was designated as the Olympic Games, and that was where you had the international participants. And it was quite dominated numerically by Americans because Europe was in a recession at the time. The Olympic Games really didn't mean much at the time anyway, so there just wasn't a lot of desire on the part of Europeans to send representatives to those games. The Americans really didn't care. They just weren't quite as obsessed with national identity as Europe was, because of course this was in the time period when Europe was leading up to World War I, and nationalism you know, in the worst sense, really was growing day by day in Europe. The Europeans had this notion about all the pomp and circumstance and protocol that sh should surround Olympic Games. Part of it borrowed from the monarchical traditions. So like at the first games in Athens, the king sort of appeared 
in, uh, for the opening ceremonies and marches in and takes his place, you know, with his retinue and then other people follow and they express obeisance to the king. So monarchy was just kind of big at those games. Well, we didn't have a monarch. So, you know, the, the Americans just weren't into all that kind of display of power and hierarchy. But what they were into was the, the quality of the performances. Because, and that actually uh, linked up with something else that was going on, which was the commercialization of sports, particularly by the Spalding Sporting Goods Company, which really utilized those games to advertise its products. And part of what they did was to provide um, equipment and, and help renovate facilities so that the, the technological part of it was really the best Olympic Games held to that date. Of course, the Europeans could care less about that, but that, you know, because of that, many of the performances were quite good and world records were set, of course, mostly by Americans, but... <laughs> and, and that was really what the Americans cared about, but for that, they got labeled by the Europeans as utilitarian. That was an insult back then, and it came up over and over. And I, I think by that, the Europeans meant they, they just don't pay enough attention to uh, enough attention to, you know, culture and refinement, civilization, um, appearance, protocol, and they they just you know wanted to do the sports, <laughs> and that's that wasn't quite right in the European point of view, and also the sports were partly being used as a tool, which was to sell sell the products of Spalding Sporting Goods. Now that was not the case with the marathon because by, at that time, you know, there wasn't a market in running shoes. And another important point is that, and this was characteristic of the first three games, athletes represented their clubs, not a nation. Representation by nation didn't happen until immediately after the St. Louis games. But in the case of the marathon, it was even more casual than that because basically if you showed up at the starting line, you could jump into the race. And that's why it's such an interesting event, you know, compared to our typical assumptions about what Olympic Games are like. And you're listening to Professor Susan Brunell. When we come back, more of this story, the story of the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Professor Susan Brunell, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, who is an expert in Olympic Games and Olympic history. And by the way, what interesting storytelling. America wasn't interested in monarchy. We didn't do power that way, she said. We cared about the performance. And by the way, in classic American spirit, how to commercialize that performance. Now let's return to Professor Brunell talking about how casual the marathon event was for the 1904 Olympic Games. There were a number of well-known long-distance runners who showed up at the starting line and were ready to run a serious race. 
And then there were those like Felix Carvajal from Cuba who had, well, he had a reputation in Cuba because he would sort of run across the island and raise money. He was a bit of an oddity demonstrating his endurance. And he had caught a ship to New Orleans where he lost his money in a casino and he had to hitchhike from there to St. Louis. And he showed up on the starting line uh, wearing long pants, leather shoes, a little beret. And apparently one of the competitors said, this isn't going to work real well in 90 degree heat to be running in long pants and got out some scissors and cut his pants off to about just below knee length. And uh, so, you know, there were amusing stories like that. There were the two men who were called Z Zulus at the time. So they were from South Africa. We've recreated their biographies, um, Lin Tao and Jan Mashiani, and they were Tswana. They were members of the Tswana tribe. Lin and Jan jumped into the marathon uh, barefoot and did amazingly well, especially considering that, that one of them got run off the course by dogs who were chasing him. And after his detour rejoined and Lynn ended up getting ninth and Jan 12th. So the race itself was just not well planned. I mean, I think the attention that was given to the course or the facilities in other sports somehow just didn't <laughs> happen in the case of the marathon. So it was about 90 degrees um, heat. It's very humid in St. Louis because we're right here at the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. The road was dirt, dust, uh, most of the way it was dirt. It went out into the suburbs. Dust was being kicked up not only by the runners and there were cars driving alongside the runners kicking up dust, but also they hadn't even stopped traffic. So normal traffic was going on along the roads, delivery trucks, people walking their dogs, so the runners were just dodging everything. The dust was so bad that one of the runners collapsed and almost died from a ruptured esophagus, I believe, who was hauled off to the hospital and would have died if not for emergency surgery. And most of the runners didn't finish for that reason. There were only two water stations. Um, and that was an interesting part of the, the state of sports science at that time. It was believed that you should not drink water while you are running. So they deliberately dehydrated the athletes, essentially. Um, that may, might sound crazy to us today, but I actually remember when I was training as a track athlete in the early 80s, even up until then, it was believed that you shouldn't drink water while you're running, while you're working out, because it might give you stomach cramps. So, so that belief persisted for longer than you might think. So anyway, they're, um, they're running nearly 26 miles. They were dehydrated. It was dusty and a lot of them just dropped out. The, the guy who was originally declared the winner, Fred Lors, he, he was a, a well-known long distance runner with legitimate credentials. Um, but um, part, about nine miles into the race, he got cramps as most of the runners were getting because they were dehydrated. And he hitched a ride with a car um, till close to the end when he got out and ran into the stadium for the final part of the race, as a result of which he was declared the winner and the daughter of the president, you know, declared him the winner. But he was very quickly revealed because among other things, he'd been riding along in the car, waving to the other competitors and to the spectators. Well, he, 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 he said it was just a joke that he had never intended to accept, you know, being declared the winner and he was taken by surprise and all that. 
So who knows how premeditated that was? It could be that when he came in and they, you know, they thought he'd won, maybe it was just too appealing to try to get by with the lie. The American uh, Athletic Union didn't believe him and did ban him from the sport for a year. But interestingly, he then one year later won the Boston Marathon. So then the man who was declared the winner, Thomas Hicks, was another interesting case of really bad sports science because he also was deliberately dehydrated. Sullivan had actually sort of pinpointed him for special treatment as a, um, a guinea pig, literally, for Sullivan's theories. So not only was he not allowed to drink water, even though he was begging for it, um, they did sponge him off with warm distilled water, and they had some brandy that they were prepared to give him if he <laughs> just couldn't go on, which, um, at one point, he's even begging for the brandy because he's so thirsty, and they wouldn't even give him that. But they were drugging him, so they gave him egg whites mixed with a little bit of strychnine sulfate, which is maybe uh, not quite as bad as the straight-out strychnine used as rat poisoning, but strychnine sulfate is also used as rat poisoning. So it, it is poisonous. Uh, it's deadly. It causes convulsions and cramps. But it was used at that time as a, a stimulant in very small doses. So he was basically being given a stimulant. But he was lucky because any more of that, and he probably would have died. So by the time he got to the finish line, he was collapsing, hallucinating. It's a little unclear whether he got across the finish line by his own power. Maybe he was sort of carried by with a man under each arm while he sort of moved his legs. <laughs> in any case, he was declared the winner, so that was the official winner of the marathon in St. Louis. The diversity was really kind of an American feature of those games. But that was part of the messiness that the Europeans just didn't like. You know, they wanted everybody to be organized behind national flags. And that was what happened immediately afterwards. There was an Olympic Games called the Intermediate Olympic Games. They went back to Athens in 1906. It was an, an official games at the time. But the International Olympic Committee these days refuses to recognize it as an official Olympic Games. But that was the first Olympic Games at which there was a parade of athletes with athletes marching behind flags and at which there was a medal ceremony when the flags of the athletes were raised. And also National Olympic Committees were in charge of designating who got to compete. So very, very quickly from the messiness of St. Louis, we got this well-ordered national representation that characterized the has characterized the games up until today. Debates still rage about the um, history of Olympic participation for different countries. So the world wasn't divided up into countries in the same way then. And in particular, athletes didn't compete representing countries in 1904. But that has meaning today. And because there are medal tallies on the uh, website of the International Olympic Committee, and there are historians who keep track of how many medals has one country won throughout Olympic history compared to the other country? And who was the first medalist for a particular country? And these things really matter. People get very angry about them. So the problem for these people is that in St. Louis, you, you have to go back and reconstruct and it's open to interpretation as to exactly what country these athletes were representing. So anyway, it's just amusing how strongly uh, some people feel about this. There are letters petitioning the International Olympic Committee, and you know, it, it just gets very heated sometimes. 
What happened in the, the split between the Europeans and the Americans in 1904 is one that, con, that has continued up until the present day. And there's just been this uh, difference in that Europeans prefer more sort of culture, protocol, symbolism, and Americans are more utilitarian and, and our sport is more commercialized. This has just been a sort of continual conflict, which is a, you know, a cultural difference that's worth thinking about inside the International Olympic Committee. The Europeans control the organization, but the Americans provide the vast amount of the funding. And so it's basically money versus power, culture versus profit. It's a tension that has continued up until the present day. And great job, as always, by Faith, and a special thanks to Professor Brunel. And the difference between us and Europe still prevail. Uh, differences aren't bad. Um, they're to be celebrated here in Our American Stories, the story of the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. 
Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we continue with Our American Stories. Up next, we have a piece from one of our regular contributors, Stephen Rasiniak. This story is entitled, Harry, My Firstborn. To read this story and its backstory, visit stephenrasiniak.com. Here's Stephen. This is a story about a time when my wife Karen and I welcomed into our family a precious little bundle of joy who happened to have floppy ears, a snout, four legs, and a tail. But first, I suppose that a small confession is in order before I share my story. There was once a time when I held a less than flattering opinion of a certain kind of dog owner. And I'm sure that you have seen them before too. At first glance, They might appear to be perfectly normal, but upon closer inspection, any previously held opinion pertaining to their alleged normalcy quickly disappears. Watching the interaction between the two species for a moment, and it becomes readily apparent that the collared creature tethered to the business end of the leash is much more than just the family pet. Study them for a little while longer, and you may even witness this goofy dog owner walking, talking, and sometimes even wearing the same matching sweater as Fifi, Fido, Rover, or Rex. Now, as far as I'm concerned, no further evidence is needed before concluding that the two-legged, snoutless half of this fashionably matching pair somehow believes that this four-legged creature is their not-quite-human and very hairy little offspring. And let's be real, I know fully well that acting as though and treating your pet as if it were your child is just weird, right? Well, at least that's what I used to think until the day an adorable little puppy came into my life and suddenly I learned just how little I knew about canine relationships. So, 
Karen and I had the perfect recipe for our life together as husband and wife. And it went much like the old schoolyard song. You remember. First comes love, then comes marriage, then, well, you know the rest. The plan was to save up some money, buy a house, fill it with kids, and then live happily ever after. And you know something? It all went just as we had planned, too. That is, until we discovered that there was a problem with the kids' part of the program. As we struggled to overcome the seemingly insurmountable roadblock to parenthood, we became parents. Well, sort of. We decided to adopt a dog, but not just any dog. We wanted a rescue dog, a real-life pound puppy. And so, one afternoon, we called the local shelter to see if they had any. And as it turned out, they did, and he had been waiting for us to meet him. He had been abandoned, unwanted, starving, and not yet six weeks old when someone left him one night in the shelter van. Volunteers suggested that maybe he was a mix between a lab and a beagle, or a beagle and a Doberman, or a Doberman and a, well, there were just as many possible combinations offered as opinions rendered. But in the end, whatever his puppy pedigree happened to be, we really didn't care. Because this tiny, black and brindle bundle of trembling puppy arrived at a time in our lives when we needed him just as much as he needed us. We brought him home, and we named him Harry. But years later, Whenever I happened to mention him, I would refer to him as our firstborn, which, to the astute listener, should serve as a clue as to how that previously mentioned kids part of the program eventually turned out. Now, as with the arrival of any new family member, Harry's wants and needs quickly surpassed our own, and suddenly we wondered how we had ever gotten along without him. Every day became another lesson in the adventures of puppy parenting. And like all new parents, we simply marveled at the physical changes that seemed to occur to our little guy almost daily. We tried to imagine how big he would one day become when he finally grew into those massive paws, which fortuitously never happened as he forever remained a small dog with big paws. We celebrate all of his little achievements, too, like when he finally slept through the night and when he mastered a few simple, silly tricks. And we were especially thrilled when he learned to tell us when nature necessitated his visiting that special spot that we had set aside for him beside our woodpile in the backyard instead of on the family room floor beside the sliding glass door. And of course, our neighbors came to know the newest puppy on the block during our frequent strolls around the neighborhood. And naturally, we delighted in showing off our little bundle of joy. And if someone somehow had missed his utter cuteness firsthand, up close and personal, there were always Harry photos available to keep everyone in the puppy loop. Photos taken at six weeks and then seven, wide awake and asleep, given puppy kisses, 
on family vacations, or just romping around the backyard. Photos from last month, last week, or even last night. I was just another proud puppy pop showing off for all to see my adorable puppy son. And, well, the thing is, I can't explain the circumstances surrounding my transformation of how I had somehow mysteriously morphed into the very same type of dog owner that once upon a time had caused me hilarious bouts of comedic cackling. Oh, I'd become one of them all right. But once I had, I could never imagine being anything else. Suddenly, two years had come and gone, and Harry was, of course by then, a full-fledged member of the family. Our lives were nothing less than perfect, or so we thought. But circumstances previously unseen were about to change our happy household and change it forever. When Karen shared the news with me, Harry didn't seem too excited. Instead, he just yawned and stretched and went right back to sleep. He couldn't have cared less about babies, whatever they were. But this would soon change when Michael was born and two years later when Tracy joined our pack. And in the end, Harry would prove to be an awesome big brother to his little two-legged siblings. But, well, that's a story for another time. Oh, and as for me, I suppose that I should offer an addendum to my original confession from all those years ago, and it is this. I am still one of those goofy dog owners, the very same kind that I once found hysterical. But hey, don't tell anyone. Instead, let's just keep this a secret between you and me and my current hairy little four-legged rescue, my bestest buddy in the world, my puppy son, Bailey. And a great job, as always, by Faith on the production on that piece. And a special thanks to Stephen Rasiniak for sharing the story of Harry with all of us. And if you have great dog stories, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Stephen Rasiniak, the story of Harry, his firstborn, here on Our American Stories. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kind here on this show. And by the way, we live in a state where it rains a heck of a lot. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And our next story is about rain, or rather an innovative entrepreneur's company that collects and bottles rainwater for sale out in Dripping Springs, Texas. That's right, Dripping Springs. That company is called Richard's Rainwater. And its founder, Richard Heineken, can probably be considered the godfather of bottled rainwater in the United States. Here's Richard in our own Monty Montgomery with the story. The idea behind Richard's rainwater started because of a dirty Texas well. 
Well, I moved out to uh, Dripping Springs. I lived in Austin, Texas, and moved out to Dripping Springs to help my sister-in-law build the Austin Zoo out. It's her, her parents had this property out there. And Susie, my wife, and her sister lived out there, and her sister was uh, raising goats, and anyway, it turned into a zoo. So I moved to Dripping Springs and built a house, and out here in the hill country, there's no other source for water except for well water. And so I drilled a well, and the well guy was he's leaving with a fistful of my dollars, says, Mr. Heineken, you have a lot of water there. That's a darn good well, a good flowing well. And I went, oh man, I was so excited. Go in the house, brand new house, right? And took a shower. Hydrogen sulfite was so bad, I almost threw up in the shower, and the water was so hard, when Susie did the laundry, the uh, Levi's could stand up in the corner, and our hair stood out like fright wigs. <laughs> and we said, man, we can't handle this. Called a uh, softener guy, said, oh yeah, that's some pretty damn hard water there. You can, I can put you two tandem water softeners together. I went, oh my God. So I looked into solutions, and I ran across a doctor who became a good friend of mine, Mike McKelvin who has started catching rainwater for his wife to really realize the well water out here basically kills plants. It uh, chokes their leaves. If you spray it on their leaves, it carbonizes over so they can't, they, they suffocate. So he started a rainwater collection for his wife's roses and they flourished and his house flourished. He, went, he got into putting in his house and he flourished and he was a really advocate for it. And I met him and I became one myself. So I looked into storage and found a fiberglass manufactured in Texas and ordered a fiberglass tank and put it in and did a real Rule Goldberg job and it was all kind of new technology to me. But just plumbing is all it was. So it's just the water level. Water, if your gutter's higher than the tank entrance, it goes in by itself, right? And so I did that and hooked up a pump to it and I took a shower and I was the happiest guy in the world. The soap just came right off. It lathered up like you can't believe. It smelled wonderful, it drank good. And the dishes, instead of being chalky, all of a sudden became uh, clear. So my neighbor comes over and says, uh, God, would you guys just buy some new dishes? And I said, no, we're just washing them in rainwater now. He said, oh my God, well, I've been buying new dishes every three years and a new dishwasher every three years, so I want that. So I went called back the fiberglass guy and said, hey, I want to be a distributor. And uh, he said, okay, well, let's work a deal. And so, so I was selling fiberglass tanks like crazy. I was the biggest tank salesman in the whole planet. I put in you know, literally hundreds of these things and I've got a thousand people that were relying on Tank Town as their source for rainwater filters and you know maintenance prop things. And so that's how it happened. Then one day, I'm putting in these rainwater systems, I have a crew of guys, and I'm filling up our water for our consumption to keep cool, the whole crew, you know, in, a, in one of those igloo five-gallon water buckets. One day we ran out, super hot day, sun, sun in July. And I, so I said, okay guys, I gotta, I'm going back home to fill up our water again. They said, okay, hurry back. So on the way I thought, you know, I should be able to pull into a store and buy this stuff. 
and the bulb went off, right? So I went, okay. And then, so then I was just focused on bottling this stuff. So I read the, the regulations on a water supply, realized that I needed to be a, a, certif- a, a licensed operator to run a water supply. So I was started going to correspondence schools, and I went to Berkeley, Cal, and Texas A&M, and I got, my, I got a license to be a public water supply operator, got a permit number and all, and then I started building a plant. And Anyway, then I get to TCQ, the, the government agency that over, oversees our water supply in Texas, and they said, well, Mr. Heineken, that's a pretty good idea but rainwater is not approved as a source for water. I said, okay, so where are you getting your water? He goes, well, you know where we get our water. We get it out of Lake Travis. So where does that come from? Well, you know, it has, it's like rain. I said, okay. <laughs> that's okay. So I, I'm going to, that's why, you know, so we need to make this, be able to have this as a source for water. I went, oh, I, I don't know, sir. And another thing, Mr. Heineken, now that we got this conversation going, we can't talk to you anymore because you're not a licensed engineer. So I went, okay, great. Well, I will come back. So I just had to prove it to them that it was a good source for water. So I built a little pilot bottling plant, and they said they approved that. Built it with my own bare hands. I'm a blacksmith. I'm a sculptor. I've cut the pipes and, and used transits and got the right things and welded everything up. And then we go out and put more systems in. And I get more, some more money, go out and buy more metal, put it all up. Then I thought, man, this is, I'm, I can't really start this yet. I got the plants going. I got everything going. I need some tanks. I ended up buying 13 tanks and we had like 250,000 gallons. And, and then I had the engineers, and this is a friend of mine, and basically wrote it on a napkin. I said, here, write this out, make it look real official. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to micro. We're going to put it through really tiny filters and we're going to separate it after it goes into a couple of tanks and then we're going to put it through UV light and then we're going to store it in a sanitary tank and then we're going to put, just before we bottle, we're going to put ozone in it. Now ozone, it's a really great sanitizer. City water supplies use chlorine and chlorine is a cancer-causing chemical and so we didn't want to do that. The Clean Water Act required public water supplies to use chlorine and there was no other source of sanitation they would approve. You know, I have a saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. And it's the same thing these cities use. They just say, well, okay, here's a 10 gallons of chlorine. And so we're going to have to mix that with 13,970 gallons of water. And that'll do it. Okay, it might taste a little chlorine, but anyway, can't do that. And so my plan was, I said, okay, here's the deal. If you take me to court, and I'll, and here's a little end of it. We have to end up in court. I'm going to tell the jury that, okay, here's what they want me to do with my rainwater. They want me to put chlorine in it, and that will cause cancer, possibly. And then rainwater, we've already proved, has no cancer-causing byproducts in it from the way we sanitize it. So it seems like a, a really smart thing to do. And so, and then also, if you say I can't do it, then then it'll be it won't be good because the jury is going to say, well, Mr. Heineken, we certainly don't want you to get cancer, so I, we like your idea. They said, well, we kind of like your deal, and it's also sustainable. And then we started doing testing on it, and and then did their monthly reports and it all always came back just beautiful and at that point more people in austin and out in the hill country were getting into rainwater collection so everybody's calling this interest and saying hey uh, i i want to put a whole rainwater system in my house so four years later we got the first public water supply using rainwater as a sole source of water without using chlorine and then that's it 
it's all over town, and it's a pretty damn good feeling. But it's a little difficult to get. But Richard makes the bottling process sound pretty easy. After catching it and put it in a, in a collection tank, that's the first thing to do. Like the city of Austin doesn't have to worry about that because they just suck it out of the lake. We have to put it in a tank that has no light in it because light makes algae and algae is, is, a, is not our friend. And then we process that through uh, more filtrations and then UV light. And then uh, finally, just before it goes into our bottling line, we add uh, ozone to it at uh, a, a certain percentage. It only lasts 15 minutes. And then, um, and then we put it in the bottle and we seal the top of the bottle. And then, so that's a perfectly pure bottle of water because there's no trihalomethanes in it, no chemicals in it. And it's just, it's just a beautiful bottle of water and you can taste it immediately. When you taste it, it's sweet because rainwater cleans your mouth. I know it's kind of gross, but there's calcium on your teeth. All day long, it's building up calcium. It washes that off. It's just amazing. So I've never had anybody say, boy, that's a lousy bottle of water. It's always, hey, this is the best darn bottle I've ever had. And it's just, that's the fact. That's what kept us going because it's the absolute truth. There's any kind of comparison of another bottle of water. It's just... Like blind testing is just kind of a simple thing to do because you just, it's so obvious. And I've come, been through a lot of them, and rainwater always prevails. And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery. And you've been listening to Richard Heineken, Richard's Rainwater, the story behind the product and the man here on Our American Stories. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. 
Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.